0: one of your visiting speakers here today. <laughs> Feels like I've been away for ages for various reasons. Mercy is definitely an important thing when it comes to the mission of Jubilee, what God has called us to. And just just I read it the other day, winning, you know, getting into the final of the footballs team. I think you guys need a lot of I just want to say thank you to you guys, Alan. George. Joan washes the football team's outfits every week, doesn't she? She needs prayer. Um, <laughs> you guys who play the football, you guys who are running the team, you know, well done. Well done. You are bringing the grace of God, the mercy of God into the lives of so many young men and their families and their kids by what you do. This isn't just a football game, is it? But football is important, I know. If you've got a Bible, you might want to start turning or scrolling to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 11. Uh, we begin, we're going to be reading Matthew 11, verses 20 to 30 today. Matthew 11, 20 to 30. If you're relatively new to the church, um, we have been gradually moving through one of Jesus' closest disciples' account of Jesus' life. And death and, yep, resurrection. Matthew's Gospel, this book we are going through, is a a revolutionary pamphlet, if you like, um, that set the first century Roman dominated world ablaze and rapidly spread out to the rest of the known world and phenomenally continues to do so today. Bringing the joy news of Jesus to everyone, everywhere. So let's get stuck straight in and let's read Matthew 11, shall we? It's not an easy chapter, but it's not an easy passage, by, by the way, I just need to warn you. Then Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent or turn around to him, the living God. And he said, woe to you, Chorazian of town!" Woe to you, Bethsaida, another town. And if the, for if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, another town, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. What's Hades? Hades is the place, literally meaning the place of the dead, the grave, the place of bodily decay, the place of punishment for the wicked. Hell, that's what Hades is. For you will go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were performed in you and had been performed in, had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's pray. We're going to need prayer this morning. Thank you, Lord, for your word. I thank you, Lord, that as we go through your gospels, this gospel, that we come to difficult passages, that we come to passages that challenge us, sometimes offend us. And I pray, Holy Spirit, for people who are listening and for your spirit in them this morning, that they would see that I would be able to proclaim your word truthfully about how much you actually love them, even in the difficult passages. I pray for people who know Jesus here this morning and people who don't know Jesus, that your grace and mercy and compassion and love shine forth in Jesus' name. So tricky stuff this morning, Jubilee. So far, we have seen miraculous Jesus, healing Jesus, loving Jesus, wise Jesus, and now, this week, it's time for Mean Jesus. Is that actually what's happening here? Sounds like it, doesn't it, when I read it, but I want to show you that is actually not the case. For, uh, the, and, and hopefully the 1800s French writer Victor Hugo might be able to help us. So, in his amazing book, some of you might have seen the r- recent remake of the film, a uh, remake of a film um, called Les Miserables. It's also a West End show. But in his amazing book, Victor Hugo's amazing book, Les Miserables, you have the main character, and he's the peasant Jean Valjean. And he'd been to prison for 19 years for stealing a loaf of bread, and after 19 years, Grueling years of stealing this bread for his poverty stricken sister. When he gets out, he's turned away by innkeepers because he has this yellow card, this yellow passport that marks him out as an ex convict. And so he sleeps on the street, angry and bitter. But then the city's bishop gives him shelter. Very kind. And while he is being fed and clothed and provided for by this gracious bishop, he sees around him the silverware, the valuable items in the bishop's palace. And so one night, Jean Van Jean plots and schemes and runs off with the bishop's silverware. However, the police capture him and bring him back and along with him, the stolen silverware, back to the bishop's home. Will the bishop release hell on him? That's what what the big question is. And startlingly, right at the beginning, the answer is no. The bishop, instead of accusing Jean Valjean um, for his crime, pretends that he had actually given him the silverware in the first place and encourages him to take a few more candlesticks. Here you go, as if he'd forgotten them. Totally undeserved, an act of grace, upside down. And so at that, the police accept the explanation and leave, realizing that it had all been a massive mistake, allegedly. However, that moment of grace changes Jean Valjean. And then you get this little section in the book where he has this inner struggle and inner dialogue with himself. And he says this, To the bishop's celestial kindness, Valjean opposed his pride, which is the fortress of evil within us. He was distinctly conscious that the pardon of this priest, the bishop, was the greatest assault and the most formidable attack which had moved upon him. He knew that his stubbornness was finally settled if he resisted this act of kindness. But if he yielded to it, he should be obliged to renounce that hatred with which had filled his soul through so many years in prison. He knew this was a moment to conquer or be conquered and that a colossal and final struggle had been Had begun between his viciousness and the graciousness of the bishop, and that's the scandal of Grace, friends. it, It lovingly forces Jean Valjean into a decision of what kind of human he wants to be, and I think that's what Jesus is doing here in the whole sway of his of his of his preaching, if you like, over the last few months to us. His startling act of grace in the first few chapters of this book calls us for a decision. It calls us for a, a decision. Do I resist and live the life that is treacherously unfolding, whether I know it or see it or not, without God, or do I accept his grace? and live altogether differently, sacrificially, all out, taking up my cross, a radical and costly life of faith. As Mike from Darlington um, spoke to us about a few weeks ago, these wars that we've just read, these wars are wars of love, Jubilee. Don't make the wrong decision. Jesus is saying this morning, I am literally dying for you. To choose correctly. This isn't mean or nasty Jesus at all. And in doing so, Jesus is introducing to us the difficult, the complex doctrine of hell and judgment. Why? Because he loves us. He loves us too much not to. Now, in our UK culture, we don't like to talk about hell really. Um, But Jesus did. Jesus spoke about hell and judgment more than all of the New Testament writers put together. The late revival evangelist uh, Barry, Billy Graham, once said, if we had more hell in the pulpit, we would have less hell in the pews. I like that. Jubilee, I think I would go as far as to say Not deeply understanding the pain of hell is our biggest stumbling block when it comes to bringing the joy news of Jesus to everyone, everywhere. So let's go there there this morning, shall we? Tricky. Let's have a hellish few minutes. Did you see what I did there? So firstly, hell is important. To hell, to Jesus, hell was horrible. We need to get that. Later in Matthew 25, Jesus speaks of hell as a place of eternal fire and punishment, decay, death, like Hades. In Matthew 5, he talks about sin as the fire of hell. Mostly when Jesus talked about hell, he didn't actually use the Greek word Hades, he used the Greek word Gehenna. Gehenna, what's that? Well, on the south Um, west corner of the city of Jerusalem, there was a place, a valley known as the Valley of Ben-Hinnom. In fact, it still exists today. And even today, if you go there, if anybody went there, there are no homes, there are no businesses there, no one's doing trade or taking walks down this valley. Why? It's because of what happened there centuries before Jesus. Way back in about 700 AD, one of Israel's worst kings, a man named Ahaz, began to worship a Canaanite god named Molech, and part of their worship involved atrocious, unspeakable acts. It was horrifying, one of which was actually child sacrifice, horrible stuff. And so the valley of Ben-Hinnom was thought to be cursed cut off from God and over time it actually became a huge rotten trash heap where the locals would dump and burn their garbage and even throw corpses on it of criminals and of those who had no families who could bury them. That's what Jesus is saying in Mark's gospel describing Gehenna. Hell as a place where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not are you getting the picture? I can see Shirley's face. It's like. <sniffs> and people began to call this cursed, forever burning, godless valley trash heap, Gehenna, which later became Gehenna. Pretty gross, huh? I hope I haven't spoilt your Sunday dinner. Jesus sends his apologies. When I look Back on my mum's death from breast cancer and my brother's Robin's death from depression and suicide, they both, they both were not believers as far as I know. I remember then how people told me that after they'd passed away that they are now at peace and free from their suffering. But even today when I look at what the Bible says about hell, those consoling words, if I'm really honest, still haunt me. We need to get hell into our soul. Gehenna, Hades, hell, as Jesus described it, was a place of unimaginable, eternal, painful fire, outer darkness, and terrible misery and unhappiness. Jesus wanted us to know that in all the blood-curdling detail that he describes it to us. He does. Choosing life without God friends is hell. (laughs) It's bad. You need to know it. Your friends and family need to know it. Secondly, hell points us away from sin and towards God. We are infinitely dependent, and hell shows us this. We are infinitely dependent on God for everything. See, see, sin is our biggest problem, Jesus said in Mark seven, twenty. It's what comes out of a person that pollutes obscenities, lusts, thefts, murders, adulteries, greed, depravity, deceptive dealings, drunkenness, mean looks, slander, arrogance, foolishness. That's all of us, right? All of these are vomit from the heart. That's what the message version says. A heart not fully centred on God. What the Bible calls sin. The despairing refusal to find our deepest identity, worth and security in our relationship and service to God. In other words, stuff you God. That's what sin is. That attitude of stuff you God. Leave me alone God. I don't need you. Sin. Now there's a more familiar Traditional version of that, breaking all the rules, smashing your neighbor's car, doing horrible things, it's easy to see for many of us how that leads to hell. We get that bit. But what's fascinating in Matthew's gospel and and when we come to Jesus' view of sin is that he's forever having a go at precisely those people who make it their life's mission to keep the rules and regulations to the dot. Pharisees, doesn't he? He says to one of, uh, he says to them in other parts of Matthew, you brood of vipers, how can, you, who, how can you who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. These were guys who were keeping all the rules, worshipping in the temple, planting synagogues across that, that, that Jewish area, praying diligently for all to see, having regular Bible studies, come on, Jesus, these were the good guys, surely. Sounds a bit like church to me. But you see, in all their good deeds, Jesus sees their heart. cold proud, self-righteous, self-absorbed, trying to earn their favour with God rather than receiving his free gift. They didn't want God for the beauty of just himself, but rather for what he could give them. Building their whole identity and security and worth on their moral performance, the outside stuff, rather than an inward heart and love for God. Putting others down in the name of empty, law-keeping religion. Jesus says to them, how will you escape from being condemned to hell? Sometimes when I'm chatting to people on Alpha or some of my friends at work, they often say, hey, you're a thoughtful guy. I don't know why they think that. Uh, you're a thoughtful guy, a scientific guy. Surely you don't think hell is a place of, is a place of burning fire and total darkness to you. And to that, I, I usually say, probably not, a lot of it's metaphorical, I think, uh, biblical imagery pictures. And then they usually say a few I'm really glad about that. I was getting a bit worried there. To which I reply, it's much worse than that. Because it is. Jonathan Edwards, a Bible theologian, writes, when metaphors are used in Scripture about spiritual things, they always fall short of the literal truth. In one of C.S. Lewis's um, sci-fi books, Perilandra, He describes the satanic figure, Professor Weston, as a description of what choosing hell, life without God, does to someone. He says of Professor Weston, the villain in the story, the forces which had begun perhaps years ago to eat away his humanity had now completed their work the intoxicated willard, which had been slowly poisoning the intelligence and the infection and the affections had now at last poisoned itself and the whole physic psychic organism had fallen to pieces a ghost was left an everlasting unrest a crumbling a ruin and order of decay hell is the place of total cutoff and separation from God, a place of absolute isolation from the favor and face of God, where the sustaining life-giving light of God, which we see all around and probably take for granted most of the time, whether we believe in Him or not, stops. No more, never again. Hell, if you like, is God's final answer, asking to us, when we ask him to leave me alone, God. And if you're not a Christian here this morning, what are you choosing? Life with him or life without him? And that's Jesus' loving question to you today. A question like Jean Valjean does. That demands a decision, a struggle, an inner struggle. Because if you say, leave me alone, God, ultimately, he'll let you have what you want. He'll say, okay. As C.S. Lewis puts it, the doors of hell are locked tightly on the inside. What could be fairer than that? If you're a Christian here, you don't get off lightly either. What are the parts of your life that you're not submitting to God? Not allowing God in, asking subconsciously to leave me alone, God. It might be related to how you handle your time or money, what you're watching, what you're worrying about, what your sex life looks like, your lusting, your arrogance, your leadership, your decision-making, your unforgiveness. Your tax evasion, your fraudulent benefit claims, your distance, your independence. What is it that you are saying, leave me alone, God, to? If hell is leave me alone, God, then quite literally, Jubilee, Jesus wants to get the hell out of you. And through you to get the hell out of there. He is a refining fire, as we've heard this morning. So hell is important. Hell shows us that living any part of our lives dependent uh, of our lives independently of God is truly hell. And finally there is some good news. And finally hell shows us just how much God loves us. Only when you know the bad can you know how much of the good that Jesus pours upon us as a free gift. What do I mean by that? When Hugh Latimer and Nicholas um, Ridley, two famous Christian martyrs, burned at the stake in 1555, uh, it's recorded that Latimer said calmly, while being burnt on the stake, uh, to his fellow martyr Ridley, he said, be of good comfort, Mr. Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England, as I trust never shall be put out fascinating. The Maccabean martyrs, they suffered horrible deaths under the rule of Antiochus Epiphanes as they refused to worship Greek gods, great acts of heroism. They were amazing examples of physical and spiritual uh, um, courage in the face of persecution and torture. What bravery. Have you ever noticed Jesus didn't die this way? Before you throw tomatoes at me, let me continue. Jesus suffered very differently to some of the well-known martyrs that we read read about. When we read the Gospels, Jesus was overcome with torment, literally shaken by what was ahead of him. In the Garden of Gethsemane, we are told that he began to be very distressed and troubled. Jesus said, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Luke describes him in agony, praying fervently. His sweat um, became like drops of blood. He was in physical shock. He was a wreck. In Gethsemane, we hear the heart-wrenching truth about what Jesus really thought at the prospect of crucifixion. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Get me out of this. I can't bear it. And even on the cross, Jesus shouts out in a loud voice um, one of the most famous and painful cries of sorrow ever heard. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? His cry, Spurgeon tells us, distills the disconcentrated anguish of the world. How come? Why was Jesus so much more overwhelmed and grief-stricken by his death compared to some of the most famous martyrs that followed him? It's curious that, isn't it? Richard Baudley writes, nowhere in all the Bible do we encounter any mystery that so staggers the mind and shocks the Christian consciousness as this tortured cry from the lips of our dying saviour. How come? And the answer, Jesus tells us, is in the cup. The cup that Jesus stares into at Gethsemane, the night before he's he's crucified. Do you remember that? Mark 14 reads, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass for him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup away from me. What's in the cup? was so bad, so horrific, so terrifying. Hell. Hell was in that cup, is in that cup. Total God-forsakenness, total abandonment, total rejection. C.J. Mahaney writes, this cup contains the full vehemence and fierceness of God's holy wrath poured out against all sin. It's the cup that was intended for all of sinful humanity to drink. Your cup, my cup. The cup is the cup of God's wrath against sin. All of our self-centeredness, selfishness, our total disregard for God, all the fire, all the worms, all the darkness, all the torment, this ultimate plan, his ultimate, Jesus' ultimate plan to get the hell out of you all of it without sending you there. If the band can come up, that would be great. On the cross, Jesus takes all our hells deep into his soul. That's why there was shuddering and terror and deep distress from the Son of God. That's why he wasn't like any other of the martyrs that followed him. When Jesus breathed his last, he said, it is finished. He meant the consequences of sin need no more be hell. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son to hell, to Hades, to Gehenna, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. By choosing to trust him, Jubilee, and only him, we now have a way out. That is the great, the best, the most joyful news that you could ever hear, which changes your life, my life, and to those around us forever and ever ever. He loves you. He loves you. Who else would do that for you? We're going to sing a song and it says this here. would I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless saviour died my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. To look on him and pardon me. Let's pray. Yeah, thank you, Lord, for your gospel. I thank you, Lord, that you release us from a future hell. That you died on the cross so that the trajectory that we were going in was you turned because of what you did for us. That you took on all of our dishonour, disregard, disobedience, and you nailed that to the cross. You took the penalty for all of that so that we might walk free. Not only free, but we might come into the loving arms of a Father who welcomes us, calls us sons and daughters, and releases us for purpose, adventure, and wonder in you. I thank you, Lord, that you will never forsake us, that we will never have to go through that hell as we put our trust in you. That what Jesus, for the first time ever in history, faced on the cross, total abandonment, we do not have to go through that you'll be with us in the fire, in the valley, and up on the mountaintops. So we ask, we say to you this morning, thank you, Lord. We worship you. We come to you before the throne of God. And we lift your name high in worship. Thank you, Jesus, for doing all that for us. Amen. 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 The response is worship, and we're going to sing that song before the throne of God.